Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A legal challenge suspends OSHA's workplace vaccine mandates. What OSHA is saying is that this is necessary to uh, prevent a grave danger to unvaccinated workers. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new registrar of voters is named to oversee San Diego County elections. That's what I truly enjoy, the participation, uh, the forum that we provide. Southwestern College wins an Equity in Higher Education Award, and the countdown is on to the return of San Diego Comic-Con this Friday. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. COVID vaccine deadlines are fast approaching for San Diego City workers, students 16 and up at San Diego Unified Schools, members of the military, and many others. But one deadline that's now in limbo is a Biden administration vaccine mandate for employees in large businesses. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, had issued guidelines for businesses of 100 employees or more to implement vaccine mandates by early January. But as of late last week, a court has suspended that order until several legal challenges against the mandate are heard. Joining me is legal analyst Dan Eaton, attorney and partner at the San Diego firm Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon and Vitek. Dan, welcome back to the show. Sure. Good to be with you, Maureen. What's the government's argument about why this vaccine mandate is needed? The government's argument is that, interestingly, that the mandate is needed to protect unvaccinated workers. Obviously, this stems from presidential frustration over uh, the fact that we have this last mile of vaccination that has not been done. But presidential impatience with vaccination is not a reason for issuing emergency temporary standards. What OSHA is saying is that this is necessary 
to uh, prevent a grave danger to unvaccinated workers uh, from uh, those that uh, are uh, not vaccinated. And that's why they are mandating this vaccination with these narrow exceptions. And who's challenging the mandate in court? Who isn't, Maureen, at this point? It's a wide range of businesses over half the state, including one state, interestingly, headed by a Democratic attorney general, uh, a number of individuals. I mean, understand that you're talking about roughly three dozen separate lawsuits, all of which now have been consolidated before the Cincinnati-based Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the the Biden administration urged businesses to, to prepare to implement the mandate in early January. But all that came to a stop last week. Why did the Fifth Circuit say that the order should be suspended? Because what the Fifth Circuit said was, while not passing on what they said was the dubious constitutional uh, justification for uh, the mandate, they said OSHA had exceeded its power uh, by issuing this emergency temporary standard, which can only be used in purposes of grave danger. They said OSHA really deals with workplace hazard. And what you're talking about is an airborne virus. Also, you're talking about hundred limiting it to 100 plus employees. Are you really saying that uh, this is, in effect, under-inclusive? If it's such a grave danger, why not extend it to everyone? So it's questioning OSHA's justification, its power under the emergency temporary standards uh, authorization that it has to issue these without the kind of administrative review that comes with full-on administrative uh, regulations. And they're saying OSHA just went too far under the statute that uh, gives it the power to issue emergency temporary standards. And Dan, talk to us some more about the legal concern about the arbitrary nature of mandating only businesses with 100 or more employees. That is one of the points that the Fifth Circuit pointed out in its order. And understand, of course, Fifth Circuit covers only Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi. But nonetheless, its order was fairly broad. And at least for now, OSHA has said they're going to put a a hold to enforcing uh, this mandate. But the idea that it's arbitrary is that if this were really a grave danger, why not go for those that are smaller uh, workplaces, which a lot of people work? And it's arbitrary to start talking about limiting it to 100 or more employees, employers with 100 or more employees. If it's really a grave danger, if we're really talking about emergency, it ought to apply to everyone. And it's arbitrary just to select these larger employers. Is there any precedent for a government agency to issue an order like this? Well, first of all, there's authority for, uh, there's statutory authority to issue emergency temporary standards, which is what OSHA is relying on. But you talk about precedent. You've heard a lot about the 1905 Supreme Court case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. But the interesting thing is the Fifth Circuit points out that, look, that dealt with a state, a government's ability to mandate vaccination. It didn't talk about uh, the federal government's ability to uh, issue mandates. And that's really the key distinction, because understand that under our constitutional design, general political Police powers over public health and safety are reserved to the states. And there is a question, given that Biden himself early on this past summer expressed doubt as to whether the federal government could mandate such a vaccination, whether actually uh, this goes too far with respect to the constitutional design in a federal government agency regulating something that appears to be a generalized public health threat normally within the exclusive jurisdiction of states. So apparently there's a good chance that the opponents of this mandate will succeed in court. Do you agree? 
You really don't know, actually. Uh, we're, we're going to have to, obviously, the Fifth Circuit, uh, the three judges in the Fifth Circuit feel very strongly that there is a high likelihood that those who are challenging it will succeed. But we're going to have to see, understand that what happened was the uh, administrative oversight of the federal courts took all of these things because it's multi-district litigation and said, all right, we're going to pull a, a name of a circuit at random. And the Sixth Circuit, which is based in Cincinnati, now has all of them. So far, at least, as of today, the Sixth Circuit has not issued a ruling. And understand the Sixth Circuit could very well decline to follow what the Fifth Circuit did and allow the mandate to go forward. But at least for now, OSHA has put it on hold and said it's not going to enforce it. Is there any way that the Biden administration could fashion an order that might pass legal scrutiny more easily? easily than this OSHA vaccine mandate. It's not entirely clear because OSHA is a logical agency to issue this kind of a mandate. And that, of course, is limited to the workplace. It's hard to see how the federal government can itself just generally issue a vaccine mandate. I think even President Biden has said that he doesn't think so. OSHA is a logical vehicle and it covers a lot of people, but it doesn't cover everyone, which is why we are getting into this issue of arbitrary and whether it really does fall within the powers to issue emergency temporary standards that are designed to address hazards in the workplace that really can't be addressed any other way. Is this possibly a way for the Biden administration to send a message to private companies? For instance, is it possible for private companies to issue their own vaccine mandates for employees? But see, Maureen, that's really the critical question, because the answer to your question is yes. Private employers always have had the ability to issue uh, these mandates on their own. This was a, a way for the federal government to put some uh, teeth behind that by exposing large employers that don't do it to fines of up to fourteen thousand, roughly fourteen thousand dollars per violation. But understand that private employers of any size still retain the ability uh, to uh, mandate vaccination. Uh, the question is whether without the federal mandate here, uh, whether uh, they are going to proceed, at least those who haven't already. And understand still, there's still a federal mandate that is in place. And that is a federal mandate that applies to federal contractors, namely private businesses that do business with the federal government. I've been speaking with legal analyst Dan Eaton. And thank you, Dan, so much. Good to be with you, Maureen, and happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. After serving as interim registrar for months, Cynthia Paz has been named as San Diego County's new registrar of voters. She replaces longtime registrar Michael Vu, who is now serving as the county's assistant chief administrative officer. Paz takes on the top elections job as the county launches a new system of vote centers to replace neighborhood polling places and offers a wider array of options to voters on how and when they wish to cast their ballots. And her term also begins as election results are doubted and challenged like never before. It's a pleasure to welcome Cynthia Paz to Midday Edition. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Now, I know you've been working on county elections in the registrar's office for several years. How do you think that prepared you to become registrar? So fortunately, um, I'm stepping into a role within a county that has administered successful, open, fair elections for a long time. So I'm coming from a history of successful elections to continue in that same vein. What's exciting moving forward is the implementation of the Voters' Choice Act and the vote center model. 
So it's providing um, more options for voters to cast their ballot and more services at vote centers over multiple days. Can you remind us about the range of responsibilities you have as Registrar of Voters? We're responsible here at the Registrar of Voters for administering all um, statewide and local elections for San Diego County. We also maintain the voter registration files and, and file maintenance, as well as the petitions process. So that's all under your purview, so to speak. The county has recently approved some major changes in the way in-person polling will be done. About 200 vote centers will replace neighborhood polling places, as I mentioned earlier. How is that new idea coming along? So fortunately, um, this has been introduced to San Diego County voters. In the November presidential general election in 2020, as well as the recent recall election in 2021, because of the global pandemic, we administered both elections under a a vote center type model. So for both of those elections, we had 200 plus large voting locations open for multiple days and we mailed every active registered voter in San Diego County a ballot. So it has been introduced to our voters, and we are joining over 60% of the state of California who has already moved to the vote center model. And have the permanent vote center sites been chosen? We're in that process right now. So we are looking at the locations that we used in both the presidential general and the recall election. And we're also starting um, a very robust public consultation period where we seek suggestions and and comments from the public related to citing these fully accessible vote centers as well as mail ballot drop box locations. And because this idea is relatively new to all San Diegans, can you explain how those centers will be different from the usual polling places? In the neighborhood polling place model, so in the March presidential primary in 2020, we operated that election under the traditional neighborhood polling place model. This is where a voter is assigned to a location and they must go to their assigned poll location. If they go to a different location, then they would need to vote provisionally um, because most likely that location would not have their correct ballot type. In the November presidential general, we had over 4,000 variations of the ballot. And in that vote center type model, we were able to provide all of those variations of the ballot at each vote center across the county. So a voter can go to any vote center and cast their ballot. It will also be open for multiple days. So in those past two elections, voting locations were open for four days. Going into the vote center model, we will have some locations open for 11 days and all of the locations, 200 plus locations, will again be open for the four days. In addition, every active registered voter will receive a ballot in the mail. They can return that ballot by mail, or they could drop it off at any vote center or one of 130 plus mail ballot drop box locations across the county that are open for nearly a month. And how do you intend to counter 
some of the doubts surrounding election results? My goal is to have a a more robust website and media presence, more social media, as well as pushing out accurate information for all voters to access on our website. I, I think that if we increase the messaging, provide awareness to voters on how elections are conducted, and the fair, accurate way elections officials conduct elections. So that is my goal. It's just to push out and make accurate information more available for voters to to read and share. And Cynthia, what's intriguing about this registrar's job for you? When I came to elections, it it was just the, the concept of providing the forum for individuals to cast their ballot. Um, Just the idea of that direct contact with with the public and providing that forum for democracy to take place uh, is what intrigued me to come over to the registrar's office. I mean, every election I I communicate with with hundreds of public observers that, that come and observe every aspect of the elections process that are Um, true warriors in elections transparency and being able to share with them in person what we do, it it fills me with such pride. That's what I truly enjoy, the participation, uh, the forum that we provide. I've been speaking with San Diego County's newly named official Registrar of Voters, Cynthia Paz. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This month, the U.S. border reopened for travelers vaccinated against COVID-19. But asylum seekers remain stuck in limbo across the border. That's because the Biden administration is continuing a controversial Trump-era pandemic policy. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis reports how this impacts people living in Tijuana. There are hundreds of asylum seekers living in a makeshift migrant camp just south of the border. This camp is a sprawling labyrinth of interconnected tents. Men, women, and lots of children sleep on concrete floors. They shower outside under a highway overpass. And the city recently cut off their electricity. It's muy feo estar aquí, en esta situación. No, no estamos por gusto. 
That's a woman we're calling Carmen to protect her identity. She says the situation at the camp is very ugly. She and her two children fled their home state of Michoacán after cartel members killed her brothers and kidnapped her oldest son. Mi vida corre peligro y y sé que que si regreso me o si ellos saben dónde estamos pues nos van a matar por no querer trabajar con ellos. She says they'll kill her too if she ever goes back. Carmen's story isn't all that unique in the camp. Most of her neighbors fled similar violence in Central America and other parts of Mexico. Gina Garibo is a social worker with American Friends Service Committee. She visits the camp three times a week to check up on people like Carmen. Es, es muy cruel, ¿no? Es muy cruel. Eh, los ánimos entre las personas es de mucha desesperación, de mucha incertidumbre. Those in the camp are desperate, she says. They have nowhere else to go. And one of the hardest parts of Garibo's job is not having answers to questions she keeps hearing over and over again. Siempre nos preguntan eso, ¿no? Hay, hay nuevas noticias. Any news? ¿Saben qué va a pasar con nosotros? What's going to happen to us? ¿Qué opciones tenemos? What options do we have? So why do we have hundreds of desperate people stranded in a makeshift camp just a few steps away from the San Ysidro border crossing? Well, that's because of Title 42, a public health order that the Trump administration implemented in March 2020 and the Biden administration has kept in place. Title 42 lets border officials turn back asylum seekers without due process. Critics of the program include Julian Neusner, an attorney with Human Rights First. And this is effectively the most sweeping ban on asylum uh, at the border in U.S. history. It's a pretty radical policy. Normally, the asylum process works like this. Someone flees their home because of some type of persecution. They arrive at the border and tell an official that they're afraid to go back. If they pass a credible fear interview, they're allowed into the U.S. and start an asylum case before a judge. But Title 42 lets border officials turn people away without giving them that credible fear interview or letting them see a judge. Neusner says that using the pandemic to justify Title 42 is disingenuous, especially now since the White House reopened border to vaccinated travelers. The fact that now vaccinated uh, tourists and shoppers are allowed to enter, but uh, vaccinated people who are fleeing violence and are in urgent danger are not just uh, is further evidence that this this policy has never been about public health. Carmen, the mother from Michoacan, has been living in the camp since April. She doesn't understand how the federal government can justify letting one group of people cross, but not the other. Se me hace muy injusto, muy injusto porque si estamos aquí, no es por gusto, es porque venimos huyendo de nuestro mismo México por la delincuencia organizada. She says it's not fair. They don't want to be at the camp, but they don't feel safe in Mexico. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued the health order. When KPBS asked why asylum seekers are still barred from crossing, they said to ask the White House. The White House didn't respond to our questions. Gustavo Solís, KPBS News.
Southwestern College has a history with anti-Black discrimination and racial tension on campus. Now the college has been named this year's Equity Champion of Higher Education by the nonprofit Campaign for College Opportunity. The recognition is for their work in awarding associate degrees for transfer to Black and Latinx students. They say it's a key part of moving the college beyond its recent past. Joining me is Janelle Williams-Melendrez, Southwestern College's Executive Officer of Equity and Engagement. Janelle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So first, for those who may not know, what is an associate degree for transfer? It is um, pretty much a, a pathway that allows students to be able to clearly go into a major. So uh, long ago, when students wanted to go to uh, CSU, they had to look at each CSU for that major and do the preparation for each one of those. And they might be different. What an ADT does is kind of consolidates all of that. So no matter which school you want to go to, if you're going to major in, say, political science, you have the same preparation for the major to get into any of those CSUs. Oh, and talk to me more about that. How do these degrees help students reach their transfer goals? Well, in order to transfer, students usually need somewhere around 60 units, have preparation for the major completed, and have, you know, any electives or um, major classes that are needed done and completed. However, um, when you, uh, most students have several schools in mind. And so in order to prepare for that, sometimes it would be a little difficult because this school wants one thing and this other school wants something else. And so really, when you're talking about about ADTs, it helps students to be able to prepare for several different schools at one time and stay on track with what their goals are. Rather than uh, sometimes, depending on the major, you could have very different paths to getting there. So maybe you have one or two classes in common, but then you would do another six units for this school and 12 units for that school, and it would be very different. And so by consolidating it down with an ADT, helping students to stay around that 60 units that's needed and not going above that for the most part, it really helps them to get out faster. And then also helps them not taking um, for not taking classes that they don't need. So if I ended up going, say, to San Jose State, but I also was was applying to San Diego State, those classes that I didn't need for San Jose State are no longer now part of my record. I didn't have to prepare for those things. So it helps consolidate. It also limits the number of units that they take just so they can get through Southwestern College and faster. According to a report by the Campaign for College Opportunity, only 15% of Latinx college students and 28% of Black college students obtain a bachelor's degree. Uh, What have been some barriers to achieving these degrees and how have you all been able to overcome them? There are all kinds of barriers and not even we haven't even started to touch uh, the pandemic, right? Not to mention, you know, the added responsibilities that students have, uh, especially Black and Latinx students, when we're talking about our family responsibilities, having to have another another job at the same time that we're going to school, not always being able to be a full-time student. All of those things can really add to the competing priorities that students face. And that's why the ADTs are so wonderful, because it, again, limits the amount of extra work that students are doing and provides this clear pathway into what it is that that they want to major in. Talk about how this achievement fits into the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
it is right in the pocket, right? So when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, what we're talking about is looking at traditional structures and bringing about equitable structures. So not ones that are only designed for some to succeed, but ones where all of our students are able to thrive. And so looking at ADTs, what we have seen is for, um, for those who may not have been uh, uh, familiar with ADTs, when the students are completing 60 units, that means that any one of those 30, what we have ADTs now, um, they're guaranteed admission to the California State University system in that major. So it is a guarantee for them to get in. Again, another one of those ways where when we're talking about equity, it means that we want people to have access to education. You talked about the numbers with Black and Latinx students not achieving um, those degrees. Well, when you have a guarantee to transfer, that helps, you know, tremendously. So that is definitely in line with our equity goals, helping to make sure that all of our students succeed, but as a proud Hispanic serving institution, wanting to make sure that our Latinx students are, are um, moving through our system and we are providing those services to support them to be able to do that, as well as all of our students in that same vein. And this recognition from the Campaign for College Opportunity is a turnaround for Southwestern. The college has had a troubled past with anti-Black discrimination and racial tension. How is the institution working to change that for both students and faculty? Well, this work has been um, happening for a long time. We are so happy to be recognized for sure. Um, and the work that we continue to do is really in line with making sure, like I said, that all students and employees for that matter uh, thrive. It has been our intentional work to make sure that we are helping students to reach their educational goals. We have for many, many years um, had lots of learning communities that support our students and other programs that support our students, including Black Brother Learn Leadership Academy, the Umoja. Uh, program learning community, the Puente learning community, Bayan, which focuses on a Filipino student experience, CHEL, which is LGBTQIA, um, and their learning experience, as well as our first year experience program that reaches over 600 students. And so all of these things have been a part of what we do for Southwestern, and we are just so thrilled that we are starting to get recognized for all of that good work that it's been happening here. And what does this recognition, the 2021 Equity Champion of Higher Education, mean to Southwestern College? We are just so proud to be recognized in this way. What it means is that we're doing what we've set out to do. It means ultimately that um, our students are moving in the direction of thriving, right, which is exactly what we want. And it's also a nod to all of the employees that help to make that happen. So for us, it means that we are moving in the right direction and, and we plan to continue to do so. I've been speaking with Janelle Williams-Melendrez, Southwestern College's Executive Officer of Equity and Engagement. Janelle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
A new sports franchise is making San Diego its home. The recently announced San Diego Wave Football Club will be one of two new teams in the National Women's Soccer League, and their first season will start in March. But the NWSL, the top division in U.S. women's soccer, just ended a tumultuous season, one that is reeling from multiple abuse scandals, culminating in multiple investigations and major leadership changes. Here to talk about the new team, as well as the league's recent turmoil, is Jill L. San Diego Wave FC team president and former head coach of the U.S. women's national team. Jill, welcome. Thank you, Jade. Lovely to be here. So your new franchise recently debuted its name. Why did you feel that San Diego Wave FC was the right name for the team? You know, when we came here, it was, uh, you know, we felt it was really important to kind of gauge uh, you know, the local people. And, and we did, uh, you know, we hired a brand content person who went out and did a lot of, you know, it wasn't even sort of give us a name. It was like, what do you think of when you think of this, uh, you know, this incredible area and city? And it just kept coming back to, you know, beautiful coastline, the beaches, the the, the sun, the weather, the climate. And so more and more, um, it just seemed like a name that uh, would resonate. And then we had, you know, we had several names, put them out there and, and got a lot of positive feedback. And I think, you know, I think why I like the the, the wave, it's, it's obviously symbolic of the area, but it's also, you know, I see it as a, as a very powerful force, um, you know, that can shape a lot of things. And it's part of, part of a greater, greater collective. So it just sort of fit on so many levels. Mm. And what made you want to be part of this new franchise in San Diego and, and to join as new team president? It was really this opportunity to come and, you know, stay connected to the sport I love, but essentially build a team from, you know, a slightly different lens, right? You know, as a coach, you're looking at players, your your immediate coaches. But now it was looking sort of broader at, you know, a general manager, a chief revenue officer, a coach. So I very much felt I was, you know, creating opportunities for others. This game has been such a gift for me. And to be able to kind of do that and and build something exciting and be competitive, uh, it just all kind of fit together. And ultimately, I think I love a challenge. And and that really was was this as opportunity presented itself to me. For the uninitiated, who may hear the word football and think of touchdowns rather than goals? <laughs> uh, can you describe what originally captivated you about the sport of soccer? Well, I grew up in England, um, where it is uh, you know it's known as football uh, most most around the world, um, except America actually. But but you know I grew up with football. Um, the the interesting thing was as a young girl over there, there were no opportunities for me to play. So it really wasn't until I moved to the U.S. Uh, when I was almost sixteen that I had the first opportunity to play. You know, my father was a coach, but when you grow up in in Europe, it's again it's everywhere. It's on television. It's it's part of you know the the local community and. You know, I just think it was something that was always in my blood and passionate about. I listen. I think every every youngster in this country gets a chance to play it. It's a very inclusive sport in terms of you know it doesn't matter your size. Uh, you 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 can play the sport, and it's obviously this country is incredibly welcoming to both both men and women. And can you tell us a little uh, about where the team is now and when we can see them take the pitch? We have a draft here in December. We have both the expansion draft, which allows us to take players from other teams. And then we also have a, a essentially a college draft. They call it the super draft where, um, you know, college athletes register. So two mechanisms for getting players. And then in addition to that, we're obviously looking international. We get five international spots. So we are, our general manager and our head coach are, are heavily into just building out this roster so that we have an incredible lineup you know, for, for next March. So yeah, things are, things are starting to become very real. We're, you know, securing our, our facilities, um, training facilities, 
and our match facilities uh, to be ready to go next March. Hmm. You know, this season was particularly trying to the National Women's Soccer League, its players and its fans after multiple scandals uh, arose involving accusations of sexual harassment and abuse, resulting in major leadership changes across the league. How have the scandals impacted you as you build this new franchise in San Diego? Well, I think, you know, first, I, I think like everybody on a personal level, I mean, it was, you know, it was incredibly hard to, to read and to hear that these players come forward because, um, you know, just anger, disgust, uh, you know, sadness. There was a multitude of emotions. Um, you know, and as I listened to these players, you know, a player in particular, Sinead Farrelly, you know, she came forward and basically said, you know, I, I want there to be a, a purpose for my pain. You know, here she was brave enough to come forward and tell this story and, uh, you know, it endured a lot. And now I think, you know, what that gave me was, okay, now we have to honor this person's courage by being the difference, by making the change. Uh, so everything from just, you know, internally what you can do as an organization to create a safe environment, transparent environment for the players, but also institutionally, you know, our league. I think it was a, a huge uh, reflection point, um, a moment for us to kind of look at the infrastructure within the organization. You know, how did this fail? How did this happen? And really then commit to, you know, moving this, moving this forward. I mean, I think there's so many incredibly remarkable things about this sport and the opportunity to play it in our country. Now we need to make sure we do it right. And I think, you know, on a, for me, I, I've come through, you know, this and, and been on board meetings and been in these end of Brussels meetings. And I really think that this crisis has kind of galvanized people, made people kind of uh, wake up and realize, listen, we, we have to be better. So I'm actually energized about the future of the sport. I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to take time. Um, it, it, you know, we want it to be better and, and we want it to be right. So I think that's, you know, that's what I hear from the ownership. I hear it from, you know, the the general managers, the coaches, everybody just wants to, uh, you know, to create an environment for these players where we can actually be, you know, uh, not just a safe haven, but a, but a showcase in terms of treating professional athletes, professional female athletes the right way. And one cause you've been involved with is fighting the gender gap in the coaching ranks. You are involved with an initiative to increase the number of female coaches in the sport. How did that become a priority that you wanted to address? You know, I honestly, I got so tired of hearing people say, gosh, where are all the female coaches? You know, our numbers are declining. And, you know, at some point you, you sort of you know, you kind of hear that enough. You think, okay, what can I do to, to be a difference here? You know, I, I remember when I first became the head coach, I had a, a woman reach out to me and she said, you know, Jill, you have a responsibility to be a voice, be visible and build a community. And that was never lost on me. And so as I suddenly started looking at these numbers, I said, you know, what can we do? What can I do to help? I think the single biggest thing that's, uh, you know, often a setback for for female coaches, not just in our, in our sport, is that you don't really have a community. You know, you're in the minority in terms of numbers and you kind of don't realize that, you know, when you're in the majority, you have people opening doors for you and creating contacts and and you have someone to bounce ideas off. And when there's very few of you, that that's a smaller resource to tap into. So we created this mentorship program. So every coach that comes in to take their A license, they then get assigned a mentor that's a, you know, someone who's been in the game for a long time, credible experience. And that's really why we try and to sort of strengthen the position of the female coach. 
Now, not to add too much pressure here, but uh, San Diegans are hungry for a championship. Uh, the Chargers left town without winning a Super Bowl. The Padres are still working mm-hmm. to, to win their first World Series. Uh, as a two-time World Cup winning coach, what do you think is the most important factor in building a championship culture? What you try and do as a, as a coach uh, or as a leader is, listen, you, at the end of the day, you can't ever guarantee the result of the game. But what you can guarantee is building a platform on which you can find success. So that, you know, what does that look like? It means providing all the resources for our coach. It means, you know, a training facility that's state of the art. It's, it's, uh, it's personnel that can support the players. It's, it's creating this infrastructure. It's creating an environment for our fans to want and kind of be a part of. And again, uh, you, you want that to translate into results. And I'm not a patient person, so I'd love for that to happen um, pretty quickly. But I also think what we've got in terms of a commitment from ownership in San Diego itself. I mean, this is a phenomenal community that loves its soccer, that um, I think will champion these women, that will you know embrace them. And so now you've got the force of not just having people in the in the crowd to cheer you on, but you also have all the resources on the on the field for your players to be successful. So, you know, I'm very optimistic. I, I kind of said this publicly many times. We're not going to be an expansion team that is coming kind of limping into the league and, and hoping to grow and pay our dues. Um, yeah, we want to we want to make some noise and, and come in and um, you know really hit the ground running. I've been speaking with the San Diego Wave FC president and former U.S. women's national team coach, Jill Ellis. Jill, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Comic-Con returns to an in-person event this Friday with what it is calling Comic-Con Special Edition. It will be a smaller show, but still at the San Diego Convention Center. As of today, the website still shows badges available for the three-day event. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando previews the special edition with Comic-Con spokesperson David Glanzer. David, Comic-Con has been on hiatus for two years because of the pandemic. We've had no in-person Comic-Con. We've had two home editions. But Thanksgiving weekend, we are actually going to have a version of Comic-Con in person, the special edition. So what can people expect from this? It's remarkable that we've had basically two years without being able to produce an in-person event. People, you know, around the country and around the world have all experienced the effects of this global pandemic. Uh, some have been affected more harshly than others. For us, not being able to produce an in-person event was really a daunting experience and really an emotional experience. We did our online versions, our Comic-Con at home, but you're right, this is our first opportunity to have an in-person event, but we want to be cautious about it. 
so it'll be a much smaller event. More focused on community, a lot of fan engagement, a nice exhibit floor. I have a feeling that those people who remember Comic-Con from some years ago may see some uh, similarities to that. So in all honesty, it's an opportunity to dip our toe into the water to make sure that we can still do this and effectively, but more importantly, safely. So what kind of COVID restrictions or requirements are there going to be? Do people have to be vaccinated? Do they have to wear masks? What can they expect? Safety is really a primary concern of ours. There are COVID FAQs on our website, but in a nutshell, uh, everyone will, will need to be wearing a mask, have, have been vaccinated or proof of a vaccination or a negative uh, COVID test. And again, the details of that are on, on the website. And what can people expect in terms of size, both in terms of the attendance level you're expecting and how big the exhibit hall is or the panel uh, rooms? Right. Comic-Con is in excess of 135,000 attendees and, and there are, you know, tens of thousands outside. I think this, this show will be much smaller, uh, probably half the size, maybe a little bit smaller still. We are hoping for a, a, a wonderfully attended show but one that is safe, because that really is key, uh, one that everybody can have a good time at, but one that isn't you know, shoulder to shoulder and in, in, in the size of, uh, of, of what San Diego typically is. So the, we have the entire facility, which is great. Um, that allows us to do a lot of staging within the building that we haven't been able to do for many years. So as an example, Hall H will be a uh, staging area for registration. We'll have um, some exhibits on the exhibit floor, obviously some great exhibitors, panels and programs uh, upstairs like we would normally have. Uh, I believe we're having some panels also in the Marriott, which is right next door to the convention center. It'll be a blending, I think, of probably the old and the new. I know there's a lot of outside activations that Comic-Con has no control over that you guys are not uh, actually sponsoring, but do you have any sense of whether or not studios or companies are planning to kind of take over that outside space and do anything? We are having a couple of activations, but I don't expect a lot more because a lot of companies are still being operated under the mandate of no personal appearances or very limited uh, activations in, in 2021. But it should be fun. And the ones that, that I've seen so far should be a lot of fun, actually. And Comic-Con is a nonprofit organization. And having two at-home editions where you offered the show for free, essentially, how has that impacted you and... Are you suffering any financial issues based on the pandemic? Yes. I, one of the things that uh, Comic-Con has been able to do is be very fiscally conservative. The reality is we had always had reserves. We looked like a very rich company, I think, on paper because we always had reserves to be able to meet any catastrophe should it happen, something with the facility, to be able to, to meet our obligations, our payroll and all that kind of stuff. I don't think ever, anybody ever anticipated that it would be a two year long thing. So, and when I say, you know, we, we look like a very healthy company on paper, I think, you know, some people think, you know, we have, you know, a tremendous amount of money. I think our, 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 our budget at the time was, you know, in the, in the 20 or, or 20, $25 million range is, is what we've been doing. But, a lot of that money is also used to produce our shows. We have this, we have um, WonderCon. That would be utilized, and then the revenue from the shows would, would increase the budget again. Not having shows for two years really was a challenge for us. It really did uh, have an impact on our coffers. We're very grateful 
a lot of the at-home events were sponsored, so we did get some revenue from that. Uh, we have some sponsorships for this show. So this is really an opportunity to also try to replenish the coffers a bit. But yes, it's, it's, it's had a, a, an impact. But hopefully, you know, as the world starts to open up again and we have these events, hopefully we'll be back on a very firm footing in a matter of, you know, no time at all. And one thing that's happening in conjunction with the special edition is the Comic-Con Museum, which like so many places has been closed during the pandemic and was planned to go undergo remodeling is going to be open at least in some way, shape or form. So what can people expect from the Comic-Con Museum during this special edition? One of the great things about Comic-Con is that we are a nonprofit and, and we are really governed by a mission statement. You know, I've sat on panels with other for-profit uh, uh, fan conventions and oftentimes, you know, they really are concerned about the bottom line because whether it's board of trustees or investors or whatever it happens to be, it's just different how we operate. We really are into promote comics and related popular art. We've done that for 50 years. One of the great things we've been able to do is to look into having a museum that will do pretty much what Comic-Con does throughout the year, which is focus attention on areas of popular art that a lot of people may not even realize is art. Because of the pandemic, we're opening up later than we had really originally hoped. Our grand opening will actually be in 2022, but we're having a soft opening the same weekend as uh, Comic-Con Special Edition. Yes, there's been some construction. The roof has been repaired. The outside has been painted. The inside has been also renovated. They're, they're uh, putting in a, a merch store right now, uh, getting ready for the very first activations. And um, we're gonna be announcing what those, uh, those exhibits are soon. So it'll be a great time to, to visit the museum. The tickets, I think, are on sale now if you go to the, our website. And it's a, it's a great kind of labor of love to let people know that I'm a big fan of movies, as I'd said, and, and I've learned a lot about comics, and I love comics, but there are so many forms of art that, that people just think of as entertainment, not art. The Comic-Con Museum will allow us to be able to shine a light on a lot of those things for longer than just the four days during Comic-Con or, or other events. They'll be able to do this throughout the year, and we're very excited about that. Well, thank you very much for talking about Comic-Con Special Edition. Beth, it's always a pleasure. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Comic-Con's David Glanzer. The in-person special edition runs this Friday through Sunday at the San Diego Convention Center. Comic-Con expects to sell badges on-site as well. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.